Now, uh, before we get into the sermon, I'd like to go ahead and read you a quick psalm. This is uh, Psalm 37. And this is a psalm of David. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. The wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy, to slay those who are of upright conduct. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. A little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time, and in the days of famine they shall be satisfied. But the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish. Into smoke they shall vanish away. The wicked borrows and does not repay but the righteous shows mercy and gives. For those blessed by him shall inherit the earth, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. I have been young, and now am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. He is ever merciful and lends, and his descendants are blessed. Depart from evil and do good, and dwell forevermore. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it. The mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom, and his tongue talks of justice. The law of God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. The wicked watches the righteous and seeks to slay him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand, nor condemn him when he is judged. Wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a native green tree. Yet he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Indeed, I sought him, but he could not be found. Mark the blameless man and observe the upright, for the future of that man is peace. But the transgressors shall be destroyed together. The future of the wicked shall be cut off, but the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble, and the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them, because they trust in him. Ah, just beautiful words there. Uh, today, today is our uh, 99th Genesis sermon. It's uh, from Genesis chapter 40, and it's going to be the entire chapter, 23 verses long. And so I'm going to skip a lot of details that you'll just have to research on your own, or we can sit down and talk to them about them in the future. But let me go ahead and read you the uh, sermon text, and then we'll get right into that. 
It came to pass after these things that the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief butler and the chief baker. So he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison, in the place where Joseph was confined. And the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them and he served them. So they were in custody for a while. Then the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt who were confined in the prison had a dream, both of them, each man's dream in one night and each man's dream with its own interpretation. And Joseph came into them in the morning and looked at them and saw that they were sad. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in the custody of his Lord's house saying, why do you look so sad today? And they said to him, we each have had a dream and there is no interpreter of it. So Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell them to me, please. Then the chief butler told his dream to Joseph and said to him, behold, in my dream, a vine was before me and in the vine were three branches. It was as though it budded, its blossoms shot forth and its clusters brought forth grape ripes, ripe grapes. And the Pharaoh's cup was in my hand and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Now within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your place. And you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand, according to the former manner when you were his butler. But remember me when it is well with you and please show kindness to me. Make mention of me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For indeed, I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews. And also I've done nothing here that they should put me into the dungeon. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was good, he said to Joseph, I also was in my dream and there were three white baskets on my head. In the uppermost basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh and the birds ate them out of the basket on my head. So Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation of it. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head from you and hang you on a tree and the birds will eat your flesh from you. Now it came to pass on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, then he made a feast for all his servants and he lifted up the head of the chief butler and of the chief baker among his servants. Then he restored the chief butler to his butlership again. Then he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Chapter 40 of Genesis is a single story. And though it being a little bit long, it has to be kept in that context. So today we're going to go through all 23 verses in one sermon. And the last time that we did this was way back in Genesis chapter 23, if you remember that dealt with uh, Sarah's death and burial. Today's passage is going to show us how Joseph's release from prison comes about. It's not going to happen in today's passage, but it shows us how it comes about. The events of the story, though, come together to ensure that God is going to make sure, in other words, that this is going to come about in its due time. He is directly and he is actively working in this woeful place to ensure the outcome. And so we see that when it's necessary to meet his desired end, he intervenes in the affairs of men. He is not a distant God who is uncaring, but he's also not a meddlesome God who actively fiddles around with our lives in an unnecessary manner. God is infinitely wise, he is completely interested, and he is actively involved when it is needed to meet his plans. But he allows us to make our own choices and he works within those choices for his own good end. And because he works this way, we have to do our part. When he calls, we need to respond. When he directs, we need to follow. And when he leads, 
we need to make sure that we follow where he leads. And the only way that we can do that is to uh, know his word and to know when he's calling us and to know when he calls, when, when to pay attention to him, when to follow him in his footsteps. We can't do it without knowing his word. It's simply not possible. We got a text verse today from the 30th Psalm. It says, sing praise to the Lord, you saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Because of Adam's sin, happened all the way back at the beginning of creation of man, separation from the Lord came upon all people. Death was the result, and for each one of us, that death will last either for a moment or it will last for all eternity. The choice is ours. Will we rest in God's favor through his son, or will we be consumed in his wrath and his anger because we've rejected him? The Bible gives us instruction on how to live our lives rightly, and it gives us pictures of what God has done to restore us to his favor. It's all to be found in his word, and so may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is despondency in the pit. This is verse one. It came to pass after these things that the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their Lord, the king of Egypt. We start chapter 40 with the words, it came to pass. This shows us that it follows directly after the previous chapter without any inter interruption between the two accounts. One thing leads to another. The false accusation of Potiphar's wife led to Joseph's imprisonment, and that leads to what happens now in today's verses. The divine hand of God is seen in the guidance and direction of each step that follows. What Joseph sees as one event after another without knowing why they're happening, God sees as a whole, which he has pre-planned and set into motion in order to bring about his intended plan. Into this unfolding tapestry arrived the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt. The butler is the king's cupbearer. The baker would be his personal chef. The occupants of both of these offices were people of very high rank, and they would have been considered extremely important individuals in the land of Egypt. They would have direct access to the royal presence and would have been selected from the most respected of all of the nobles of the land. The chief of staff of the White House in America would be a comparable position to what we would think of as what these guys do here. In the case of these two, they were placed in prison where Joseph was because, as it says, they offended their lord, the king of Egypt. Now, there are several ancient scholars that make guesses as to what they did, but it's not really certain. What is possible, my personal guess, is that the king got sick from what was being brought into them to be eaten because they, one is the, you know, the cupbearer and one is the butler, and that's their job. So that would be my guess as to what's happening. If it was something like that, then, of course, he'd be offended at it, and that could only lead to trouble for them. All right? Verse 2, And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief butler and the chief baker. They offended the king, and he, in turn, is angry with them. The office of the cupbearer, and you may or may not know this, is found elsewhere in the Bible as well. Nehemiah, who wrote the book of Nehemiah, was the cupbearer to Artaxerxes, who was the king of Persia. And then in 2 Kings 18, and also found in the book of Isaiah, is a guy named Ravshakeh, which in Aramaic is a term for this exact same position under the king of Babylon. Now, for that king to be angry with such a high-ranking person meant that he or both of them would have done something that was pretty grave. 
If he had gotten sick from his meal, that would be enough right there. And in a few verses, we'll see that this anger will end in a bad way for one of the two of them. Verse 3, so he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison, the place where Joseph was confined. Now, nothing is coincidental where God is concerned. And so these high officials are put in the same place where Joseph is. The captain of the guard would have been Joseph's previous master, Potiphar. That's the guy that had placed him in prison after, you know, the event with his wife that we saw last week. And so now here they are, they're all together. And Joseph is in the prison and it says he is confined. Some uh, translations say he's bound. But the fact is he can move about. He is not literally bound, okay? There's an alliteration in the words in this verse. Uh, there is the prison, which we saw last week as hasohar. It means the roundhouse. And there is the confinement, which in Hebrew is the word asur. So this alliteration is something like we might say in English, Joseph is bound in the roundhouse. All right, verse four. And the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them and he served them. And so they were in custody for a while. They're in the roundhouse and Joseph is given charge of them. Their time in this prison is not specified. A term that is used in the Hebrew is yamim. This means days, literally, but it's often used in, to mean a, a, a term of unknown duration. It could even mean years. And this could be the case here because we're going to see that they're let out on Pharaoh's birthday. If they got him sick on or before the previous birth, birthday, then bringing him out a year later on the next birthday would make sense. But whatever amount of time it is, Joseph is given their charge by the captain of the guard. Verse 5, Then the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, had a dream. Both of them, each man's dream in one night, and each man's dream with its own interpretation. Now again, we see God's hand working in this story. These weren't ordinary dreams that pass away when you wake up. They were dreams they both remembered and could sit up and they could compare with each other. And they're going to be found to be prophetic in nature. Each has his own individual dream, which would in turn each have its own individual interpretation. And however many people there are in the prison, only these two are recorded as having memorable dreams. Even Joseph doesn't have one. So all of this points to God's superintendence over the situation, which is intended for us to understand that what is happening was planned by God to meet his purposes. Verse 6 and Joseph came into them in the morning and looked at them and saw that they were sad. Here we see that Joseph is not bound in the prison, but he was bound in prison. In other words, he did have freedom to move around. Now in the morning, he came to them and he saw their faces. The Hebrew word here is the word zoaphim. It means to be enraged, to be really angry. They had these dreams and they were angry that they had no way of interpreting what they meant. If they weren't in the prison, but rather still in Pharaoh's courts, they could have gone to the magicians and asked them to interpret them. Verse 7, so he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in the custody of his Lord's house, saying, why do you look so sad today? In Hebrew, he says, madua penchen raim, why are your faces evil? For Joseph, just one look, that's all it took, yes, just one look. He could tell that things weren't right. There was something bothering the cupbearer and the cook. Something had changed about them during the night. He knew something was wrong by the change in their faces. Verse 8, And they said to him, We each have had a dream, and there is no interpreter of it. They tell him that together they had their dreams, 
And the answer they give him shows that they were angry because there was no interpreter of the dream. If only they weren't in this prison, they, then they could go ahead and get an answer. But if God is going to give a dream which should be interpreted, then he will give an interpreter for that dream. It would make no sense otherwise. A dream from God with no interpretation would be a contradictory concept. And so Joseph responds accordingly. Verse 8 continues. So Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell them to me, please. Why would God give a dream and not tell you what it meant? This doesn't make sense, so please tell it to me. Maybe this is the reason why to prison I have been sent. Interpretations belong to God. Surely you must agree. If the dream is from God, then it is to be interpreted because interpretations belong to God. The source of the dream will be the source of the interpretation. If Joseph interprets the dream, it is because God has so used him. Now, he's not claiming to be God's appointed interpreter, but he's saying that he could be God's appointed interpreter. Daniel explained this very clearly to us when he stood in the presence of King Nebuchadnezzar. Let me read you this from Daniel chapter 2. Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. And so, like Daniel, Joseph says that God is the interpreter. He doesn't say the name Lord or Jehovah, but simply he uses the general title, God. A pagan would have no reference to who Jehovah is, but everybody realizes who God is, whether they admit it or not. If someone has had a dream from God, there must be God who gave the dream. Our second thought today, the resurrection of life. Verse 9, Then the chief butler told his dream to Joseph and said to him, Behold, in my dream a vine was before me. The chief cupbearer speaks first. It doesn't say why, but when we get to the baker, it will say that he spoke when he saw that the first interpretation was good. So I'd suggest that he was scared of speaking up at first because his dream disturbed him. And when you see what that's pointing to, then you will understand why he was afraid. Now, we might ask our own selves, because we're speaking about fear and dreams, and uh, what are we afraid of? Are we afraid of a bump in the night? I mean, do you live in a house where you think, I heard something outside and I'm afraid that, you know, it's going to harm me? Are you afraid of financial ruin? I ask that because in the past couple years, I've had some of my friends have lost everything. Every single thing that they had worked for. And, you know, I'm 49 and I went to school with them. One of them had a company that was worth over $30 million and he lost all of it. And that guy's faith is still as strong today as it was before he lost it. In fact, I think it probably has strengthened his faith. So is that what's going to be the end of your walk with Jesus as you lose all of your financial whatever? You know, another one of my friends also was in... Uh, uh, the same grade with me, and he lost everything as well. And uh, he, his house was gone. He had a very good-paying job. He lost all of that. And then, of course, he lost his wife because his wife, you know, believed that I need a, a financially secure husband. And so she went chasing off after another guy that I went to school with who was much richer. And uh, so, you know, these type of things do happen in life. And you have to ask yourself, am I afraid of this happening? Or am I going to keep my faith through that happening? You know, we may be scared of losing a loved one 
and I'm not talking about through death. I'm just simply saying, you know, what if what if my my best friend defriends me on Facebook? Is that going to be the end of your life there? Are you going to give up on God because he was cruel and took away your best friend? I mean, these things seem funny, and it, but when you think about it, these things happen all the time, and people commit suicide over stuff like this. How about death? Death is pretty permanent, and it is 100% guaranteed. Are you ready for your death? Lord, I don't even think about it often, but I know I will die. Everyone before me has, and it will happen to me too. Only Jesus came back from that place, and so I must ask, why? What can make me rise again? What is it that I must do? There is a way to be freed from that fear. So stay tuned, and I'll explain it at the end of the sermon, as I always do. Now, in the dream, the cupbearer says that he saw a vine. This is an obvious connection to his office. He is the cupbearer, and there's a vine. In Hebrew, the word is gefen, and it comes from an unused root, which means to bend, just as a vine bends as it grows. In the book of Hosea, chapter 10, Israel is likened to a vine. And in John chapter 15, Jesus says these words, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, but without, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. The symbolism is given for us to see Jesus if we can simply think the picture through clearly. There's an immediate fulfillment, which we're going to see in this chapter, but there is an ultimate fulfillment in what will come about in Christ. And so as we get through this sermon today, stay tuned for the exciting details. Verse 10, and in the vine were three branches. It was as though it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and its clusters brought forth ripe grapes. Right before the cupbearer's eyes, the vine showed three branches, and they bud, they make blossoms, and then right on there, the, there are clusters of grapes coming right out of the blossoms. It was as if he's looking at a time-lapse screen, you know, a movie going past in front of his eyes, from vine to grape, just right away. Something similar happens to this overnight in uh, just after the exodus of Egypt, uh, exodus of Israel from Egypt. When there was a challenge to the priesthood of Levi, the Lord told Moses to have the, each, uh, a designated representative from each tribe bring forward a rod with its, the name of his tribe inscribed on it. And when they did this, they, uh, this is the account of what it says. The following is seen in Numbers chapter 17. It says, And Moses placed the rods before the Lord in the tabernacle of witness. And it came to pass on the next day that Moses went into the tabernacle of witness, and behold, the rod of Aaron of the house of Levi had sprouted, put forth buds, had produced blossoms, and yielded ripe almonds. So you see the symbolism is the same thing happening right there. The almond has its significance in the Bible. The Hebrew word is shaket. It also means to watch. And that's, you know, you notice it says the tabernacle of witness twice. It's trying to teach us something about what God is using the almond to symbolize. And if you ever want to do this study, we can sit down together and we can do it. A study on the almond tree. It is a beautiful picture of what God is doing in human history. Well, the vine has its own significance in the Bible. God uses the natural, including agricultural themes, to show us how he works out his plan of redemption. There's never a detail in the Bible which isn't exciting in how it fits into the larger themes of the Bible. And the more you read this book, the more these themes start to fit together and the more they reveal to you the wisdom of God. It, it really is astonishing how he does this. 
He uses numbers. We've already seen a billion numbers in our past sermons, and they're used consistently throughout the Bible. Every time you see the number 40, you're going to see the same application, the number 10, the number 7. It's always the same, the number 5. All of these numbers, God is using them to show us stuff. Colors, different colors in the Bible have different meanings. Dust, you know, dust. Man was created from the dust of the earth, and so we can make that connotation as we read through the Bible what God is doing when he indicates dust somewhere in a passage. Almonds, wheat, barley, all of these type of agricultural themes all have a significance, and they're continuous throughout the Bible. You have water. You have types of metal. You have the directions of the earth, north, south, east, and west, and they all point to something that he's trying to show us. Different animals. You see all these different animals listed in the Bible, and they're always very precisely listed, and they're used consistently in themes throughout the Bible. Even incense. We were talking about that today in our Revelation study. Incense always means the same thing in the Bible. And the Bible actually tells you what incense means, so you don't need to go digging for a, a deeper meaning. It's explicit and it's clear. He uses created things to make spiritual applications. Hair on a woman. Hair in general means something. Hair on a woman gets more specific. Because he created these things, the applications will always fit perfectly with the picture that he wants to show us. This book that we study here has an unlimited supply of intelligence mixed with love, all put together so that we can understand him better. Let's go on to verse 11. Then Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. No sooner had the vine budded, blossomed, and put out grapes than the cupbearers pressing them into Pharaoh's cup, and the cup was being handed to him. Now, you can learn a lot about individual commentators and scholars by reviewing their commentaries on this verse. You wouldn't expect that, but yes, you can. You can see which scholars were teetotalers, which means that they don't drink any alcohol at all, and which ones weren't. Those who are opposed to any hint of drinking alcohol will invariably say that the ripe grapes were being brought in and they were being squeezed into the cup, and that was grape juice, not wine. How you come to that conclusion. But then you get the other scholars who look at these verses in the context of the whole dream. If the cupbearer saw the vine, he saw it spread, he saw it blossom, he saw it bud, he saw it put forth fruit in a single day, then the obvious connotation concerning the pressing of the grapes is that it was his job, regardless of whether it was fermented or not. He was in charge of the process. This verse has nothing to do with the cup containing alcohol or being merely grape juice, but rather it is speaking of the process of supplying the king with the fruit of the vine. Now, I brought this up because little distractions like these among scholars diminish the importance of the pas passage through petty peeves. I'm not promoting drinking alcohol, and I'm not saying you should or shouldn't. Either way, that's not the point here. But when somebody introduces something like this, all of a sudden, your thoughts about what is going on in the verse get misdirected, and you lose sense of what God is trying to tell you. And that kind of stuff also makes my teeth to grind. I mean, it just, it makes me so angry that people, and it's not just with alcohol, it's with all types of other things that people say, I think. It doesn't matter what we think. What matters is what God says. And if we can remember that, God has spoken. That's why I like Billy Graham's sermon so much. Billy Graham always says, the Bible says. That's what matters. It doesn't matter what we think. It doesn't matter what our church does. Those things don't matter. 
if they don't match what the Bible says, then they mean nothing. So please don't get sidetracked by petty peeves that people insert into their commentaries. Verse 12, and Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. The dream is obvious, and yet it takes a spark of uh, divine interpretation to understand that the branches are in fact three days. Seeing that though, the rest of the dream falls into place. The term he uses here is shaloshet yamim hem, yet three days. Before the third day is over, it will come to pass. That's not at all unlike uh, the uh, death of Christ, who was resurrected on the third day. It's another thing people will debate. Christ was resurrected after third days, when in fact the Bible says it 13 times that he was resurrected on the third day. The Hebrew way of saying this, we get a sense of what other passages in the Bible mean as well. These three branches are three days. This bread is my body. This cup is my blood. In the Hebrew language and in the Hebrew mind, a one-to-one comparison is often used to say that something represents something else. And this is why when we take communion, we don't believe that the bread is literally Jesus' body, nor is the cup literally Jesus' blood. That was never the intent of his words, though many attempt to justify this in their theology. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take just a minute. I believe that every person in a church should be schooled on the principal uh, tenets of uh, the Christian doctrine each year. And the way that we do that is either through a Bible study. Most people don't go to Bible studies, and so we can do it through the sermons. The deity of Christ is a principal doctrine, and that needs to be taught at least once a year so you remember where that comes from and how you can uh, defend that. Uh, you know, another thing, divine election. That's a principal doctrine that we need to review. Well, one of the principal doctrines, and I say it's principal because it bears heavily on heresy, is the taking of communion. Some people call it the Lord's Supper. And so real quickly, I want to give you four views on it. There are a couple other views, but these are the four prevalent views on taking the Lord's Supper. All right, the first is transubstantiation. The second is consubstantiation. The third is spiritual. The fourth is symbolic. Real quickly, transubstantiation says that the elements that we're going to take after this service here, the, the bread and the wine, literally become Jesus' body and his blood when we eat them. There is a literal, metaphysical, somehow change in those elements so that when you're eating it, you're actually eating Christ's body. Now, over a billion Christians on earth hold to this doctrine, and it's not substantiated by the Bible. There are a few verses that are in the Bible that seem to indicate this, and they're taken out of context. Okay, the second is called consubstantiation. This is kind of, uh, this is Martin Luther came up with this, and I think he didn't want to be branded as a complete heretic and burned at the stake. So instead of saying transubstantiation, he came up with consubstantiation. That says that Jesus Christ is in those elements. Think of fire and metal. You've got metal, and there's fire in the metal. And so you have his, uh, basically his essence in those elements. That's consubstantiation. That's kind of a, uh, I, I don't know how you could come up with that other than my thought that he was just scared of being branded a heretic. And so he went that far and no further. The next view is what <clears throat> John Calvin held to is that Jesus Christ is spiritually present when we take the elements. Okay. And a lot of people don't really, uh, they think, oh yeah, well, that sounds right. When we take these elements, Jesus Christ is here with us. He is spiritually present. Okay. 
Now, the problem that I see with that is that diminishes the fact that Jesus Christ is spiritually present with believers at all times. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit, and when you know we gather, whether there's one or two of us, and whether we have the elements or not, he's there with us. When we go into our closet and we close our uh, closet door and we pray to the Lord, it, it says he sees in secret what uh, uh, he will proclaim openly, what we do in secret, or I know I missed trans or uh, misquoted that verse a little bit but you understand that jesus christ is always spiritually present with the believers so that's kind of nonsense to say but it's getting away from the the first two which are obviously incorrect and then you have the third which is i think the guy's name was zwingali all right he was a baptist and he said these symbolically represent the lord okay and that makes sense because jesus christ on the night of his crucifixion held the bread in his hand and he said this is my body when in fact it wasn't his body it was his his uh, bread that he was holding in his hand so you see that this verse that we're looking at right now this is the interpretation of it the branches are three days are a one-to-one -one comparison this cup is my blood it is a comparison and so jesus christ is always with you if you are a believer in jesus christ and that is not literally his body that we're eating we're not having a reenactment of a bloody sacrifice we're we're symbolically taking this. We're proclaiming his death until he comes, as it says in the book of 1 Corinthians. So there's your doctrine on that for the year. I'll bring it up in another sermon sometime next year. Verse 13. Now within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your place, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand according to the former manner when you were his butler. The ex explanation is complete right here in this verse. Within three days, the cupbearer will be brought back into the favor of Pharaoh, and then one commentator comes up with something that uh, he seems to have got from a historical document that each year the pharaoh would make up a new list of his high officials. On or after the previous birthday, they were removed from the list, and now the list is being updated. And this would be very similar to the president of the United States appointing cabinet officers with each new term. And it would make sense as to why this comes about on pharaoh's birthday. All in all, though, it's very good news for the cupbearer. Verse 14, But remember me when it is well with you, and please show kindness to me. Make mention of me to Pharaoh, and get me out of this house. When Joseph speaks, there is no hint of interpretation that he could be incorrect. He's so confident of it that he says to the cupbearer that when it is well with you, do this thing. This shows with certainty that he knew what would occur, which brings us back to his own dreams of the past. He already knew that his brothers would come and bow down to him at some point in the future, but he didn't know how it would happen. To ask the cupbearer to intercede for him now would be a stretch even on a good day. I mean, to ask somebody to do something like that is almost unbelievable. But he may believe that this was his divinely appointed path to freedom. Verse 15, For indeed I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews, and I also have done nothing here that they should put me into this dungeon. Joseph says in Hebrew, Gunab Ganapti, stolen. I was stolen. I was taken away from the land of the Hebrews, and I've done nothing here to be thrown into this dungeon. And the word for dungeon here all of a sudden changes. It's the word bore. It's the same word which is used to describe the pit which his brothers had thrown him into in a previous sermon where you saw that picture, the tomb of Jesus Christ. We simply cannot miss the usage of the words which have been given in order to understand what is being pictured. 
the term hasohar, or the round room, was used twice. The word bore, or pit, is used here. The symbolism is that of a round pit, like a tomb. Jesus was in the tomb, having done nothing deserving of death. Then he was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews. Instead, his message has gone off to the Gentiles, just like Joseph. Keep thinking, keep thinking. As we go, it'll all start to make sense. Our third thought today, the resurrection of condemnation. Verse 16, when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was good, he said to Joseph, I was also in my dream, and there were three white baskets on my head. The cupbearer cup was the first to be given his dream. And now that such a similar dream has been given an A-plus rating by the Bureau of Better Dream and Interpretations, the baker decides to go ahead and tell his dream as well. His words are translated many, many different ways here. The term in Hebrew is saleh hori. Some people say three white baskets. Some say three baskets of bread or some other term, okay? Most likely, though, it was three baskets of of bread. You have to think of the symbolism of Christ. I am the bread of life. You know, I am the, the vine and you are the, uh, the fruit and you know, all that. The symbolism is of Jesus Christ here. And if you think that through, then you know what's going on. So as I said, most likely it's three baskets of bread. The baskets were wicker. And so you would be able to see the bread through them. And that's where the white comes in. Etchings are found in Egypt and you see them all the time in all these hieroglyphs and stuff where men would carry baskets on their head and the women would carry things on their shoulders. So if it's a basket, it's going to be at eye level. You're going to look through the wicker and you're going to see the white bread showing through that wicker. Okay, that's the symbolism that we should get there. Verse 17, in the uppermost basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh and the birds ate them out of the basket on my head. The Jewish historian Flavius Josephus says that there were loaves in two of the baskets, and in the third, there were other tasty baked goods. The birds swoop down, and they eat the bread. What should be bread for Pharaoh is devoured by the birds. Verse 18. So Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation of it. The three baskets are three days. Once again, there's a three-day fulfillment of the dream. As we've seen so many times in the Bible so far, and we're going to see time and time and time again throughout the rest of the Bible, when two things are placed side by side, there is a contrast, and yet there is a confirmation. All right? This is no different in this particular set of two dreams. The confirmation is the three days. And examples for you, day and night. They contrast, and yet they confirm the duration of a single day. You have the Old Testament, you have the New Testament. They contrast, and yet they contrast in that one is the law and one is grace, and yet they confirm that they are the word of God. You've got good and you've got evil. Of course, those contrast, but they show us the whole state of morality. You've got Jesus. He's God and he is man. They contrast, and yet they confirm the incarnation of God and man. All right, verse 19. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh from you. Now, as obvious as this verse seems to read, it's not really sure how this guy is going to die. Some translators say that his head is going to be lifted off by decapitation and that his body is then going to be nailed on a tree. Some say it means that he would die either by hanging or crucifixion and that the lifting up of the head is the same as the other guy. Josephus says that he was crucified. However he dies, he's going to hang on a tree and the birds are going to eat his flesh. 
The confirmation in these events is that it will come in three days. The contrast is that he is going to die. In the dreams, there is life and there is death. We are in Christ or we are in the devil. There is a curse upon man from sin. There is a blessing upon man from the cross. These dreams likewise contrast and yet they confirm. Verse 20, now it came to pass on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all of his servants. And he lifted up the head of the chief butler and of the chief baker among his servants. You know that only two birthday parties are mentioned in the whole Bible? Did you know that? The Pharaoh's uh, birthday here and Herod's birthday party where John the Baptist gets his head cut off. Mm -hmm. And because these were both rulers who supposedly didn't worship Jehovah, and bad things happened, the Jehovah's Witnesses came to the conclusion that nobody should ever celebrate a birthday. Now, this is the crazy kind of thinking that should let you know that you're in a cult. But if you're in a cult, you won't think that the thinking is crazy because you're in a cult, such as the nature of not paying attention in life. The fact that these rulers' birthdays are noted has nothing to do with the general celebration of birthdays by the people of the world. Please feel free to enjoy your birthday party, all right? <laughs> they are mentioned because they are rulers, and the celebration affected the outcome of the decisions that they made. In the case of Pharaoh, it was time to reassert his rule and reaffirm his nobles, and this is exactly what he's going to do. His rule and authority will be established through the decisions concerning life and death specifically that of his butler and of his baker. And so he lifts up their heads. The meaning of this comes from the surrounding context. It means something like to hold a trial. So you imagine a group of people are entering into the presence of the king. They'd have their heads down and they'd have their eyes averted away from the gaze of the king as a sign of respect. To lift up one's head then would be to meet their gaze. For the, those who are in the king's favor, they would be looked at with approval and be like, good job, you're back in my good graces. For those who are out of his favor, their meeting his eyes would be a note of disapproval, maybe a little scowl and he knows what's coming after that. His gaze then would be their sentence, whether it means more imprisonment or execution, which is exactly what we're going to see in the next verses. Verse 21, then he restored the chief butler to his butlership again, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Now, whatever made the Pharaoh angry with the cupbearer is now forgiven. He lifted up his head with a favorable gaze and his status was restored. In acknowledgement of that, it says he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. In Hebrew, though, it's much more revealing. It says he set the cup upon the palm of Pharaoh. The imagery would be that of Pharaoh, you know, opening up his hand like this and then the cupbearer gently placing that cup in the palm of Pharaoh. Verse 22. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpret, uh, interpreted to them. Exactly as Joseph interpreted, so it came to pass. The chief baker went off to his death. And the word here for uh, what happened to him is the Hebrew word tala. Now that can be translated in a variety of ways, but it also includes crucifixion. However he was hanged, he would have been left in the air for the birds to eat. And this would be especially troubling to an Egyptian who believed first in embalming and then a little trip into the afterlife. Such would not be the case with the uh, chief baker. Verse 23, our last verse of the day. Yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. In a sad state of affairs, 
Our last verse today closes with the fact that the cupbearer didn't remember Joseph. Now, if you think about it, who would want to bring up a matter like that to Pharaoh when you just got back into his good graces? You can't blame the guy at all. It is the most obvious path to take in such a situation. But the fact that Joseph was forgotten, stuck with the Jewish people, hundreds and hundreds of years later, as the book of Amos records, Joseph's suffering became an idiom for any time that someone forgot about the affliction of another person. So I want to read you for this from Amos 6. The first verses show the ease of life of people, and the last verse will show you what they're referring to. It says, Woe to you who put far off the day of doom, who cause the seat of violence to come near, who lie on beds of ivory, stretch out on your couches, eat lambs from the flock, and calves from the midst of the stall. Sounds like Thanksgiving, doesn't it? And uh, who sing idly this, uh, to the sound of stringed instruments and invent for yourself musical instruments like David, who drink wine from bowls and anoint yourself with the best ointments, but are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Well, what's that talking about? That's talking about you and me and people all throughout history that have it easy in a society because God has blessed that society. And then they forget about the affliction of Joseph, their brother who's bound somewhere and is just completely forgotten. I've got it easy. I don't need to worry about them. And so once again, as I do from time to time, I would like to remind you, some of you have come with me and you will know uh, that uh, there are afflicted people even in Sarasota couple, I see two people that have gone, actually three, four people in here that have gone with me down to the missions on Saturday morning. And if you ever want to see people that are really, really afflicted, and some of it is self-inflicted, don't get me wrong, as a matter of fact, the majority of it is, it doesn't change their affliction. What they need is redirection, and what they need is Jesus. And so every Saturday morning at 9.30, I'm down there with another two guys, and we've been doing this faithfully, never missed a Saturday in five years, although some of us have missed Saturdays. We have never missed a Saturday collectively. And you can go see how people are in affliction. And that's what this is speaking of right here. We don't want to forget Joseph in prison while we are basking in the luxury of living in America. And even if you're not really rich, if you're just living paycheck to paycheck, I guarantee you that you have more than most of those people down there. And some of them are homeless. And they just walk around sleeping in the, the park. And then they come and they hang around with their friends during the day or something. Really afflicted people. Don't forget the affliction of Joseph. But anyway, despite that, once again, here we are at the end of a story which tells us about things that really happened and what the events ultimately lead to. You know, Joseph is going to be taken out of the prison. These are interesting and they give us hope. They show us that God is watching out for us in our moments of affliction. But as always, there's more than just the surface of the story. The minute detail is given not just curious elements that could have been given to us in far fewer words, but rather to get it, us to search out those details in order to see the work of Jesus Christ. At the ending of the last chapter that we saw last week, we read these words, and the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. A few things that we don't want to lose sight of are that Joseph is picturing Christ and that Joseph has been sold by his brothers to a Gentile land and his brothers picture the Jewish people. 
So what is happening here is an interim story of some sort before Joseph meets up with his brothers and Jesus meets up with the Jewish people again, okay? This is something that is relevant mostly to the church age, in other words. Joseph is in prison and all the prisoners have been committed into his care. Regardless of the length of the time he's there, this account is picturing the effect of Jesus' work as seen in his time in the tomb. What occurs here of long duration for Joseph is reflecting this short interval and how it bears on the souls of all men. Joseph has been given charge over the prisoners. Jesus, likewise, is in charge of all of those who are in the prison of death. In Revelation 1, verse 18, it says these words, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. In order to have those keys, he first had to die and to prevail over death. Now this power is in his hand, just as Joseph is in charge of those who are in the prison. Paul tells us of the reward which followed after the time of trial for Jesus. Here are his words. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, meaning Jesus, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fulfill all things. So what we have in this chapter of us is a story of that lower that time in the lower parts of the earth. There are the, there is the tomb where the souls of all men are, and into that place come two people, nobles of Pharaoh's court. There is the cupbearer and there is the baker. It is the captain of the guard, Potiphar, who entrusted them into Joseph's care. The two men picture, then, the saved and the lost of all humanity. Both are given a dream, and each dream is explained. Both dreams will be fulfilled on the third day. Now, I want you to pass that around that I gave you earlier, Darla or Hedico, whichever one of you has that, so that they can see what I'm talking about. And I'll post this on the video as well. It happened on the third day. Jesus' time in the tomb was ended on the third day. But his time in the tomb also looks forward to another three-day interval in human history. In this instance, the day represents a thousand years. Peter, quoting the 90th Psalm, says these words, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Peter is here quoting that from the 90th Psalm. Actually, it's verse 94 if you want to look that up. The reason why it pictures a thousand years is that Christ came at the year 4,000. The final judgment of all men will occur between the year 6,000 and the year 7,000 depending on if it is the first resurrection or the second resurrection. But all will be judged by the end of the third day, which would be the year 7,000. And this is why the Hebrew is so specific. It says, yet three days. In other words, from the time of Christ's substitutional death, his sacrificial death, pictured by Joseph's time in the tomb, in that prison, until the end of the seventh millennium, will be 3,000 years, three prophetic years days. And this is why it's important to remember how Joseph was put into prison in the first place. He didn't go there for his own wrongdoing, but he went in place of someone else, Potiphar's wife. He took her punishment. All right. The two nobles were placed in prison by Potiphar, who is the captain of the guard. 
Potiphar's name, as explained a few sermons ago, means priest of the bull. All people have gone, or they will go, we're all heading there, into the place where Jesus went. And they are placed into his care by the priest of the bull, the sacrificial mediator between God and man. Either their sins are dealt with before they die, or they're not. And that's what we're seeing in these two people right here. So, only through the death of Jesus Christ can we hope for the release from the prison of death, which is followed by eternal life. And then come the dreams. The first dream is that of the cupbearer. He sees a fruitful vine. It buds, it blossoms, and it bears fruit. The cupbearer then is the person who is found to be in, in Jesus Christ, who is the true vine. He himself said these words in John 15. He says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. On the other hand is the baker. He has bread to offer to the king, but instead it's eaten by the birds. And this symbolism isn't unique to this passage. It's found elsewhere in the Bible as well. Abraham made an offering to God back in uh, Genesis chapter 15. And what happened? The birds came down to eat it. But Abraham was vigilant to drive the birds away. In the gospel accounts, Jesus speaks of the word of God being like seed that's thrown out in different areas. The seed which falls by the wayside is eaten up by the birds. And so it is with this man. His offering is eaten up and Pharaoh found no favor in him. He pictures the person who is not vigilant, who does not bear fruit. He is in Adam. He is not in Christ. Each of them is told their fate in the interpretation of the dream. The cupbearer will live and he will be exalted. The baker will die and his flesh will be eaten away. This is the judgment by Pharaoh, who in the next chapter we will see very clearly represents God, who is the supreme ruler. The cupbearer, the wise soul who is fruitful in the true vine, Jesus, will be restored to the position that he originally had, which is fellowship with God. Adam had that fellowship back in the Garden of Eden. He saw God face to face. All right. He sinned and he was sent to the prison of death. This is represented by the cupbearer's fellowship with Pharaoh before he lost favor and then he went to prison. What he lost will now be restored. We see that right at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21 and 22. The baker, on the other hand, had his offering stolen away. When he came to Pharaoh, he had nothing to offer but himself. He was taken from the prison and executed. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to go up to God and we're going to be judged. What am I going to offer? You can either offer Christ or you can offer yourself. And I tell you, you will always fail if you offer yourself. They're going to be brought out of the prison of death, which is Bor, the pit, Hasohar, the round, the roundhouse, and they will have nothing acceptable to offer to God, and they will receive their sentence, which is termination in the lake of fire, pictured by the birds eating that guy's flesh away. This passage is a sobering reminder that we are all going to face God. You know, I'm not a big preacher on hell and fire and brimstone, but this is what God wants us to see in this passage, that there are only two fates for mankind. Every one of us will face him, and every one of us will be judged based on something. It will be on our own insufficient merits or on the merits of Jesus Christ. The symbolism of death as a prison isn't something I just made up out of my head to make this story up. It's given right in 1 Peter chapter 3. It says there, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, 
being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the spirit, spirits, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Jesus himself tells us of this fact in John chapter 6. He says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. There are a million more details in this chapter that will show us the work of Christ. But I've tried to give you just enough to show you the marvel. I mean the absolute stunning marvel of what he has done for us. He went to the grave and he carried away our sins when he wasn't even guilty, just like Joseph wasn't guilty and he was sent to prison, that he might restore us to our original favor with God. This is the picture of the Bible in a nutshell in the chapter we're looking at today. Favor with God, out of favor with God, restored to favor with God. That's the plan of redemption in a nutshell. And here we see it in this beautiful passage about two dreams of two men bound in the roundhouse with Joseph. If you've never received this gift of life and this gift of righteousness, I'd like just another minute to explain to you why it's so important. If you haven't figured it out from this, let me try to dumb it down just a little bit so that you can absorb it. I'll give you four verses very clearly. The wages of sin is death. We get death because we've sinned. And the Bible goes on to say that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Those are two things that we know intuitively. We don't need the Bible to tell us to it, tell us those things, but we can figure it out a little clearer when the Bible tells us directly. We have sinned and we die because of sin. And then that beautiful word that I love to mention every week, but, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's not the crummy life that we live right now. I've had a terrible backache all week. Poor Kelly has too. We've got somebody over here with the headache. We've got addictions and we've got perversions and we've got people that abandon us and we've got all these terrible things going on in our life. That is not the life that God is going to give us someday. It is going to be beautiful. It's going to be so much better. And why isn't it better now? Because God wants us to trust that what he has for us will be better. But the gift of God is eternal life and wonderful, beautiful life. And then one more verse. If you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. That's it. That's all that God wants from you is to just simply say, I cannot save myself. I'm down in this. I'm in the pit. I can't get out of there. He has to bring me out. And when he brings me out, I'm going to see him face to face. And I want Christ to represent me at that moment. That's it. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Wonderful stuff from a perfect creator who just wants to fellowship with us. And he wants us to do it by faith, not by works, not by self. Got a closing verse for you today from Hebrews chapter 2. Listen to how this so beautifully pictures what we've been reading. This is about Jesus. Inasmuch then as the children, meaning us, have partaken of flesh and blood... He himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Were bondage, fearing death, fearing that prison, and he takes that away from you. What a wonderful Lord. What a great God. Ah, great stuff. Here's something fun for you to consider. Next week is Genesis 41, verses 1 through 13. And unless the rapture happens first, that'll be our 100th Genesis sermon. Can't wait. Just the fact that we've reached 100 of these things. That's what, two and a half or three years? I don't know. Whatever it is, it's a long time. And uh, some of you have uh, patiently endured through almost every one of them. And I appreciate that. 
Now, I'll tell you this before we give our poem today. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. And he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. All right? Our poem today is called Restored to the Favor of the King. It came to pass after these things that the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, as his title rings, offended their lord, and so he flipped. And Pharaoh was angry with his officers, these two, the chief butler and the chief baker, their status he withdrew. So he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison which must have been dusty, the place where Joseph was confined, life was looking hard. And the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them into his care, and he served in this regard. They were in custody for a while, staying there. Then the butler and the baker of Egypt's king, who were confined in the prison, had a dream, both of them, a curious thing. Each man's dream in one night, and each man's dream with its own interpretation, it made both rather uptight. And Joseph came into them in the morning and looked at them and saw that they were sad, as if in a forewarning, he wondered what trouble these two had. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in the custody of the house of his Lord, saying, Why do you look so sad today? How can your happiness be restored? Then they said to him almost in a fit, You see, we each have had a dream, and there is no interpreter of it. It's like having a bowl and having no ice cream. So Joseph said to them in an attempt to appease, Do not interpretations belong to God? So then tell them to me, please. To give a dream and not reveal it would be kind of odd. Then the chief butler told his dream to Joseph and said to him, Behold, you see, in my dream a vine was before my eyes, and in the vine were branches three. It was as though it budded, its blossoms shot forth as well, and its clusters with ripe grapes were studded, and there is still more to tell. Then Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, and them I pressed into Pharaoh's cup so grand, and, the place, and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Thus the dream progressed." And Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. This I do submit. Now within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your place. Get ready. It's just ahead. And you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand, according to the former way, when you were his butler and life was grand. Get ready. It's three days from today. But remember me when it is well with you. And please show this kindness to me. Make mention of me to Pharaoh, this please do, and get me out of this house quickly. For indeed, I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews, I submit. And also, I have done nothing here, even till this day, that they should put me into this pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was good, he said to Joseph, I also was in my dream. And there were three white baskets on my head, and there's more, so let me continue with the theme. In the uppermost basket, I can't wait for the explanation ahead were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, and the birds ate them out of the basket on my head. So Joseph answered and said, This is the interpretation of it. The three baskets are three days, just three days ahead. Like previously, this detail I do submit. Within three days, Pharaoh will, as you see, he will lift off your head from you and hang you openly on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh. This they will do. Now it came to pass on the third day, which was the day of remembering Pharaoh's birth, that he made a feast for all his servants, a feast of happiness and mirth. Then he lifted up the head of the chief butler and the chief baker among his servants in the land. Then he restored the chief butler to his place again, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph. Instead, he carelessly forgot about him. 
There is a prison where men's souls are bound, and the only release from it is the work of Jesus. Only through his shed blood can renewed life be found. God has done all of this, all of it, for us. Each story tells us of his glory. Each word shows us of our Lord. It's an amazing and beautiful story, and we find it revealed in his superior word. So let our lives be filled with pursuing what he has given. In this glorious book is the recipe for eternal living. Hallelujah and amen. Oh, God, thank you. Thank you for this one chapter, which so succinctly summarizes what you have done for us in human history. We fell out of your favor. It was our fault that it happened. And yet you have worked all through history, all through history to restore us to you, even in the grave itself. It's not just something that you did from outside. It's not just something that you asked us to do, but instead you participated in it. And you went to the grave on our behalf, Christ, Lord Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for that. And now we have the choice to make. It's so simple. Let's just put our faith and our trust in you and be reconciled to God the Father. And for all of eternity, we will walk in your presence. I just can't believe how wonderful this story is. But I thank you again for reminding us of it once again, as you have so many times. I'm here. I'm here with you. I'm working it out for your good. Thank you. And we want to praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.